Morning, church. How are you? Happy Easter. <laughs> there it is. Nice to see you all. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start there this morning. And uh, it's nice to see you all. I, for those of you who uh, have been with us over the last couple of weeks, in preparation for Easter, we've been in kind of a short series called A Place at the Table. And what we've been looking at is the significance of the table that the Lord Jesus invites us to and just what that means that we have a seat at the table that he's created for us, right? We've talked in the last couple of weeks about the idea of the table as a place uh, of community where everybody has a seat. We've talked about the idea of the table as a place of celebration where we're uh, sort of reveling in all that God has done. We talked last week about the table as a place of remembrance, where whenever you sit around the table, you're remembering both the meals that have come before, and you're looking forward to the meals that come ahead, and Jesus calls us to remember him around the table. This morning, we're talking about the table as a place of provision. You know, every time you and I have ever come to a meal table, we've sort of come with the expectation that somebody's going to serve some food there. That's kind of the point of the meal table, right? You expect that provision is going to happen there. And the same is true when Jesus invites us to his table. It is a place of provision, and he doesn't want us to miss what it is actually that he's setting the table with, what it is that he's providing for us. He has an expectation that he will open our eyes and that he will awaken us, not just to our physical hunger, which we all sort of feel anyway, but to a deeper spiritual need that only he can satisfy. You know, we all sort of come to the table with expectations and hopes for what it's going to be like. I don't know about you guys, but I I have this sort of recurring thing that happens with my family where I I really want us to have like meaningful family meals. You know what I'm talking about? And I got four kids, so sometimes it's a little tricky, but I always have like kind of this big dream that we're going to sit around and we're going to have real meaningful conversation and we're going to gaze lovingly into each other's eyes and maybe my kids will hug at the end or whatever. It never really really pans out. I, uh, I had this great plan on Friday, Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, to take my family out to dinner before our Good Friday services. And so we, uh, I told them, like, don't make any other plans. We're all going to go out to dinner. We went to one of our favorite places uh, here up on Imperial. There's a place up there called Super Juicy Dumpling. And we love that spot. And we went there for dinner. And we were all excited. And it wasn't open yet because it opens a little bit later. So we had to kind of scramble. So we made an alternate plan. And we drove up the street further down Imperial. And we went to a place called Urban Plates, right? I don't know if you've been to Urban plates before. That's a good spot. The food's all fresh. It's kind of like a modern day, um, it's almost like a modern day cafeteria. Like you grab a tray and you can pick what you want, but it's all incredible food. So my kids go through the line. They're all able to pick out what they want. We make our way over to the table. We're sitting together. I, I, you know, you pay for the bill like after you order all your food. So I pay, it's like a hundred bucks, but look, I'm the one who chose to have four kids. So that's on me, right? I get it. So, and, and it was worth it to me because I thought, you know, we're, we're going to have this incredible time together before our Good Friday celebration, like before our service together. It's going to be really beautiful. And so we're sitting around the table, and I'm just waiting for the beautiful moments to begin, you know? I'm just waiting for that to happen. And I look across the table at my son, Hank. He's 15. And he goes, I don't think I can eat this sandwich. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to eat it because the, 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 the guy just put new rubber bands on my braces. And so are you kidding me? That's a $14 sandwich, bro. Like, they make $3 soup at this place. You could have got that if you didn't. Like, why did you order that? He goes, I don't know, it looked good. It still looks good. I just don't think I'm going to be able to eat it. I'm like, what? And then, so then I look at my son, Jack. He's 17, and he's got his phone out, of course. You're probably used to this. And he's on his phone, and I'm like, hey, what's up? He goes, hey, do you know what time this dinner's going to be done? Because I got some friends that want to get together. And I'm like, what? And he goes, also, after the Good Friday thing, would it be cool if I go to the movies with my friends? He's just like making plans for things he's going to do later. I'm like, just be present here. And he goes, 
no, I gotta finish this, right? So he just kind of keeps working on it. I'm like, uh. I look over at my daughter, she's, uh, she's 12. I look at her and she's looking all frumpy. And I, I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? She goes, I didn't want to order off the kid menu. <laughs> and I was like, well, but okay, so like what was it that you wanted to order off the adult menu that you didn't get to order? She goes, no, I, I mean, I wanted macaroni and cheese. I just wanted the adult macaroni and cheese. <laughs> like, are you joking with me? Like, what? I look at my son, Will. He's my youngest guy. He's uh, right across the table from me. And uh, I, he's looking all sad. He goes, dad, I'm sorry. I don't like this chicken. And I was like, what do you mean you don't like the chicken? He goes, well, when you cut it, it's kind of stringy. And I'm like, that's what chicken is like when you cook it, right? I'm like, you don't know that because you only ever eat nuggets. He goes, does this place have nuggets? I said, no, right? Just, can we please just have a nice family dinner? And it, did, it just kind of went down from there, right? You know, so I'm like, I'm feeling discouraged because I wanted it to be this really meaningful moment. I wanted to provide a meal for my family and have them appreciate it and love each other and just have this really beautiful time. And it didn't, I mean, even as we're like, as we're driving away, my wife was like, well, that dinner was kind of a bust. And I'm like, yeah, it was a bust, but it's gonna make a great story on Sunday. <laughs> and then, then after I told that story in the first service this morning, somebody's like, do you pay your kids like whenever you tell a story about them? And I'm like, pay my, I paid a hundred bucks for that story. I already paid for that story. It's, we're even, right? But I had these high hopes, these high expectations. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus gathers his disciples around a Passover table for a Seder dinner. This is the kind of dinner that they would have had every year since the time they were little. It's, it's a memorial dinner that was established by God and that the Hebrew people had kept in perpetuity their entire lives. They would have been very familiar with both the elements that were being served at the table, the bitter herbs and the lamb and the, the four different cups of wine. They would have been very familiar with the unleavened bread and all of the words and the ceremony that go along with the Passover table. Jesus gathers his disciples together for something that they sort of thought they knew already. It was kind of just a a thing they sort of expected. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And he says to them in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, it says, when the hour came, he reclined at table, that's Jesus, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I love the fact that the creator of the universe looks at this motley crew of disciples and he goes, I couldn't wait for this dinner with you. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And he tells them why. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's given them a little hint. He's kind of foreshadowing a little bit because the Seder dinner, the Passover dinner that they were used to was never anything but a picture or a type of a much greater exodus to come. The dinner that was ordained by God for the Hebrew people to celebrate was always celebrating the exodus of God's people from their slavery in Egypt and their movement into the promised land. But that dinner was only ever meant to be a type of the greater exodus of mankind from the land of sin and death into the land of resurrection life. So he says to them, I've been looking forward to having this meal with you before I suffer. He knows his suffering is coming and he also understands something about the fact that in his suffering, This Passover symbol is about to be fulfilled. He's pointing at something that they don't even fully comprehend, that I'm about to fulfill the meaning of this historic table. And then it says something really interesting. It says in verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Now that that sort of breaks the Hebrew tradition. It's It's not the typical words that are used for the first cup. He says this in verse 18, 
For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now those words probably don't seem startling to you because you're, you're probably not of the Hebrew tradition. You're not used to the regular ceremonial words around the Hebrew table for Passover. But these words would have been very startling to the disciples because the patriarch or the one who's leading that meal, he's got a script he's got to work off of, right? When you take the bread, the unleavened bread, you, you say something along the lines of this bread is unleavened and it's representative of the bread that our forefathers ate when they were escaping from Egypt and they didn't have time to allow their dough to rise and so they ate unleavened bread. There's like a prescribed script and Jesus has broken the script. He takes the bread and he breaks it, he gives it to him and he says this bread is my body that's being given for you. He takes the cup and he says, this, this cup represents my blood that's being poured out for you. It would have been startling. It would have been shocking to them that he's sort of taken their traditional dinner and hijacked it for something new. It would be like if your elementary school teacher got up at the beginning of the day when you're getting ready to do the Pledge of Allegiance and if she'd said, hey, everybody stand up for the pledge, but this morning we want to do something a little different. Instead of pledging allegiance to the flag, I'd like you all to pledge allegiance to your teacher, right? We'd be like, mm, not happening. I don't, I don't know about your elementary school teacher but that's a pledge I wouldn't have made, right? And it would feel sort of discomforting and a little bit peculiar that she would take something like the pledge to the flag and use it for her own purposes. It would have felt startling to these men that Jesus didn't use the traditional words, but would have been, what would have been even more disturbing is that he looks at them and he says, these elements, this provision, the bread and the cup, they represent my body that I'm giving for you, my blood that I'm pouring out for you. These guys around the table, they don't want Jesus to give up his body. They don't want Jesus to pour out his blood on their behalf because they want him to lead them, because they want him to be a revolutionary, because they want him to rally an army and chase the Romans out of Jerusalem. They're not interested in his death. They want him to live and lead. And yet here he is saying, this bread and this cup represent my body being given for you. Well, what's he doing? He, he knows it will be startling to them, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to point out for them that they have a much greater need for provision than just to have their stomachs filled. That there is a much greater need that every man and woman has that cannot be satisfied through the consumption of food or the consumption of drink. That you can eat food at a table all day long and it will provide for your temporal hunger, but it will do nothing for your spiritual state. Jesus looks at them and says, I'm not just giving you a Seder dinner, I'm giving you myself because you have a deeper need than even you understand. Every time we come to the table, we recognize a hunger, but I think sometimes we miss the real truth that Jesus is trying to articulate, that there is a need that each and every one of us have. Not a need for, for temporal substance, but a need for life itself. You know, it's interesting. When you think about the mission of Jesus, right? Think about why Jesus came to earth. He was fully God, and he came to earth in a body, in the incarnation. And when people think about the mission of Jesus, sometimes they think of it in terms of like, oh, he came to improve our lives. He came to make our lives better. He's gonna modify it. Sort of that idea of like good to great. Like Jesus came, and for those who follow him, he's gonna take our good lives, and he's gonna make them awesome, Right? But that isn't the way Jesus saw his mission. That Jesus never used terms like that. He never said, I've come to improve your life or I've come to modify your life. In fact, the way Jesus perceived his own mission when he talked about it in John 10.10, 10, he says this, 
The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus' mission wasn't one of modification. His assignment here, his purpose for coming, wasn't about improving our lives or making them better. It was about giving us life, period. Because what Jesus recognized, and sometimes we, we miss, is that each and every man and woman on the face of the planet has a deep need, and it's rooted in the idea that we are spiritually dead in our sin. Now that might feel weird to you, because the word sin is kind of a churchy word, and you don't hear it all the time. But the Bible teaches that each and every one of us were created with a purpose, that we're not just sort of a random act of God, that he didn't just set the earth spinning and then walk away from it, but he gave us life and breath. You and me, he gave us life and breath for a reason. We exist for a purpose, and our purpose, each and every one of us, is exactly the same. God created us to know him, to have a relationship with him, and to worship him. From the ground up, you and I are built to glorify God or to worship God in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, and even in our attitudes, we can glorify God. We're, we're worshipers, that's what we're built for. But even though that's our design, and even though that's God's purpose for us, the Bible goes on to say that each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, have fallen short of that purpose. It says in Romans three, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What does that mean? God's glory is our purpose and we've missed the mark. All of us have sinned. When we think about sin sometimes, we think of it just in terms of like the big, heinous crimes. You know, the murder and the bank robbery and the kidnapping. But the Bible defines sin as any thought or any word or any attitude or any action that fails to glorify God, the purpose for which we were created. Anytime we fail to meet the standard for which we were created, the Bible calls that sin. And you, you might concede that, right? If you live in the same world I do, and, and you do, if you look in the same mirror that I do, and you do, then you know that there's a pervasive brokenness in our world. I look in the mirror and I know that I'm not a perfect person, that I'm not glorifying God with every thought and word and deed and attitude, and that most days what I'm trying to glorify is myself, my own appetites, and I look at the world and I see a world that's driven by people trying to satisfy themselves, but that's not the reason they were created. So when the Bible says all of us are sinners, I go, yeah, no, duh, I, I get that we're all broken, that we all fail to glorify God. You might concede that this morning. You might go, yeah, I get it, we, we're all broken. But the Bible doesn't stop there. You see, it, it goes on in describing our need and saying that the, that the consequence or the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Now, if you're a thinking person, you might put those two together and go, okay, I might concede that we're all sinners, that we're all broken, but when you say the consequence of sin is death, well, here we are. I mean, we just sang a bunch of songs. We, we, you know, we're, we're here listening to you. We're not dead, so how is that true? Well, when the Bible talks about the consequence of sin being death, it's not just talking about physical death, Right? We all sort of think in terms of physical death, that someday we're gonna get old, or we're gonna get sick, or you're gonna get in a car crash, or if cartoons have taught us anything, you're gonna have an anvil drop on your head somehow, I don't know how that's gonna occur. But someday your body's gonna quit, right? The Bible teaches that the kind of death that is a consequence of sin is not that physical death, but it's a spiritual death. John chapter one, speaking about Jesus says, in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. Passages like Psalms 5 will say the wicked or the sinful can't dwell in God's presence. So look at how this works. We're all sinners. God is holy and our sin separates us from him. Our sin separates us from God who is life, rendering us spiritually dead. The problem with spiritual death 
is that someday your body is going to kick it, right? Someday you're going to get older, you're going to get sick, or the anvil will fall. And the deal is that when your body quits, if you're spiritually dead in that moment, you go into eternity fixed in that position, separated from God forever and ever and ever in a place called hell. And people go, oh, I don't really like to hear anybody talk about hell. Listen, I don't like to talk about hell, but it's a biblical reality. The reality is that those who enter into eternity spiritually dead remain separated from the holy God. And as unsatisfied as you might be by that truth, and as frustrated as you might be by that truth, the reality is that God is unsatisfied with that also. That God loved us. Remember, he created us for a relationship. He created us to know him and to love him. God doesn't want us to be separated from him. And so God made a way to rescue us. You know, you'll hear, sometimes you hear like old-timey Christians, they'll go, you know what you need, young people? You need to be saved. You gotta get saved. And it feels just like a, like a Christian-y kind of a word. But can I tell you, the word saved is actually the best word for what Jesus does. He rescues us from sin and death. You see, Jesus came to the earth with a purpose. He came to the earth with a purpose, and it was to glorify his Father by rescuing us from sin and death to rescue us from eternal separation. Jesus came to the earth in a body, fully God and fully man at the same time, and he took our sin upon himself. The prophet Isaiah describes it like this. It says, the iniquity or the sin of us all was laid on him. Jesus came as a substitute. A substitute. He came in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't go there because he deserved it or because he had earned that. Christ died on the cross because I deserved it. Because you and I had earned that penalty. The consequence of sin is death. Jesus takes the sin of the world and he goes to the cross and he dies there because we have a greater need than just filling our stomachs or taking another sip of water. Jesus recognized we have the need of life, that we are dead. You know, it's interesting. There's a passage in the Bible where... um, where the people were, you know, Jesus had multiplied the bread and the fish. You know that story, right? Thousands of people. He makes lunch for everybody. And the consequence of that particular miracle is that all of a sudden everybody started following him everywhere because they wanted more free lunch, right? So they're following Jesus everywhere and he shows up in a place and they're like, hey, you know that thing you did yesterday with the loaves and the fishes? That was pretty rad. How about you pull that one out of your hat again? You know, and he's like, Jesus looks at them in John chapter 6. And he says, you're not following me because you believe in me. You're following me because you had your stomachs filled, right? And you want more lunch. And they're like, yeah, that's pretty true, right? And he goes, but it's about belief. And they say, well, what, what kind of thing could you do to make us believe? Like, uh, lunch? You know, and he's like, ah. They go, come on, we're not trying to be unreasonable here. But God, when he wanted to convince our forefathers, he gave them manna from heaven. You've heard that story. And Jesus goes, Manna is not what you need. This is what he says. This is John chapter six. We read it earlier. John six forty seven. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is looking and saying, you think you want a fish sandwich. You think you just want me to give you the things, the temporal things that you're asking for, but the deeper need you have is the need for life, and the only way to get life is through me. 
I'm the sustenance. I'm the provision. When God invites us to the table, this table of community, this table of remembrance, the the table of celebration, he provides for us here not a lunch of fish and bread. He provides for us his body and his blood poured out on our behalf in order to reconcile us to God. Jesus comes and he takes the sin of the world on himself, your sin and mine, every compromise we've ever made, and he dies on the cross. I think sometimes people sort of feel like, you know, like Jesus had all these plans and they got interrupted, you know, that Judas tricked him or that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they kind of bamboozled him, like this idea that maybe Jesus had like all these things he wanted to do and then he's like, oh no, I'm on the cross, you know, like that isn't true, right? Jesus wasn't murdered. Jesus wasn't martyred. Jesus himself says, no one can take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to pick it back up again. What's the message? The message is that Jesus wasn't put on the cross. He went to the cross. Had all the human beings on the face of the planet locked arms and tried to keep Jesus off the cross, they couldn't have stopped him. He wasn't surprised by it. It was his destination from the beginning. And had they tried to stand between him and rescuing you and I, they couldn't have done it because he came here to provide for us his sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and he died. He shed his blood and he was buried dead. Not in a coma, not asleep, right? The Romans at that time in history were experts at making sure the people they wanted dead were dead. And they put him in the tomb. But he didn't stay there. It's what we're celebrating this morning. And for me as a kid, it was all, Easter was always a little confusing, right? The resurrection. My parents would be like, oh, Easter, you know, put on a tie and here's a, here's a chocolate bunny. And I'd be like, I don't, like, I don't get it. Like, I don't, was Jesus riding on a bunny when he came out of the tomb? Because if so, like, how awesome was that bunny, right? That's a, that's a huge rabbit. I'd love to hear about that in the Bible. It was always so confusing to me the way those things go together. I I remember my parents being like, no, we're celebrating the resurrection. And even that, as a kid, I'd be like, well, I don't get why we're celebrating that even because you've already told me that like, you've already told me Jesus is God, right? And they'd be like, yep, Jesus is God. And be like, well, if he's God, then why is it worth celebrating that he rose from the dead? Like if I was God, I'd rise from the dead all the time. You know, like I'd, uh, I'd choke on my breakfast cereal and rise from the dead. And then I'd get on my bike and I'd ride straight into traffic and rise from the dead. Like I'd climb up to the tallest tree and dive out on my head and rise from the dead. Like if I were God, rising from the dead would be my signature move, you know? Like all my friends would be like, oh great, here comes Darren. We know what he's gonna do, rise from the dead. We get it, Darren. You can rise from the dead, big deal, right? I didn't understand as a kid why resurrection was worth celebrating because it seems like that's just something God can do. But as I've grown and as I've walked with Jesus, you know what I've come to realize? This day is absolutely worth celebrating. The reason we celebrate Easter, the reason we celebrate is that when Jesus walked out of that tomb, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had the ability to make dead things live. And what mankind needs more than another meal at the table, what mankind needs more than money in their bank account or more than another pleasurable experience, what mankind needs more than another good feeling is life. We don't need to have our lives improved or modified. We need life, period. And when Jesus walks out of the tomb, he proves that he is the only person in the course of human history that can extend resurrection life to dead people, and that's us. The Bible says in John 3.16, the most overquoted verse in the Bible, right? That God loved the world so much he gave the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish, which is what we deserve, 
that anybody who believes won't perish, but instead will have eternal life or resurrection life. And for a long time, I, I sort of wished I could change that verse. Right? I sort of wished that I could, ch- I know that sounds like heresy, but I kind of wished I could change that verse so it said things like, um, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever seen a picture of him wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Because I could just like, you know, sketch out a thing of the dude with the bi- ro- like bushy beard and the rosy cheeks and the whatever, and I could be like, hey, look at this. And everybody would be made spiritually alive, right? I wish John 3.16 said, God loved the world so much he gave his only son that anybody who'd ever heard his name wouldn't perish, but instead would have eternal life. Because I go, hey, pay attention. Jesus, everybody be made spiritually alive, you know? But that isn't what the verse says. And the verse says what it says for a reason. Why does it read the way it does? Have you ever thought about it? The verse says, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anybody who believes, why belief? The reason that verse reads that way is that belief is the one thing nobody else can do for you. See, I could force you to look at a picture of Jesus I sketched on a piece of paper. I could trick you into hearing me call out his name, but I couldn't touch your heart with either of those things. I couldn't make you believe that you're a sinner, believe that you're spiritually dead, believe that Jesus is the true king, that he is the son of God, that he rose from the dead. I can't make you believe. It's not enough to be in close proximity to Jesus. It's not enough to be in a church. It's not about what you can do or how much you give. In fact, the Bible says that this gift of resurrection life is not something you can earn. It's not something you deserve. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works. So listen, we're not selling resurrection life in this place. You don't need to trade anything with God. Your good works or your happy thoughts or your Bible memory or your church attendance. There's no trade to be had. It is not something that can be bought or bartered for. It is the gift of God. He gives resurrection life by his grace to those who believe. But belief is the key. And it's not enough to just be near him. You know, there's that story in the Bible of Jesus pressing through a huge crowd, right? And all of a sudden he stops. In the middle of this huge bustling crowd, he stops and he goes, wait. He goes, somebody just touched me. And his disciples are like, uh, yeah, dude, like everybody's touching you. There's like a million people in this crowd. And he goes, no. He says, it was different. I felt power leave me. And so they sort of push through the throng and they find this woman who'd been sick. She tried everything to be healed. And she'd shoved her way through the crowd and she'd reached out and she'd touched his garment. And Jesus looks at her and he says, your faith has made you well. You know what I think is striking? It's not enough to just be bumping into Jesus. It's not enough to just be around him. Like in that crowd, like we don't read the story of like Jesus in a crowd and everybody's bumping into him and every time a bald guy bumps into Jesus, he sprouts a full head of hair, right? (laughs) Hallelujah, the bald guys say, right? It's not enough to bump into him. It's not enough to be in the crowd. It's not enough to touch him. It's about faith. And so the question for us, Jesus is saying, I am providing myself for you. Those who believe, he says in John 6, will have eternal life. Those who believe will have eternal life. The question for us this morning is, are you spiritually dead where you sit? Or are you spiritually alive? And if you're spiritually dead where you sit, the good news for you is that there is absolutely zero reason why you should remain in that state. There is absolutely no reason for you to remain spiritually dead because the saving work of Christ through his death and resurrection has already been accomplished. 
He extends to you by his grace resurrection life. You'll hear people say sometimes like, oh, you know what you need to do? You need to ask Jesus in your heart. That's right, you need to ask him in your heart. And I, I know what people are trying to say through that, but I kind of don't like that language, and I'll tell you why. To me, when we say you need to ask Jesus in your heart, it kind of feels like picking teams for dodgeball, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and all these guys are lined up, and they're all like, oh, I really hope Darren picks me into his heart. You know, and I'm like, eh. I'm picking Jesus, and he's like, yay, right? <laughs> Wrong picture. That's not what we're talking about. It's not me choosing Jesus out of a lineup. The right picture is of me falling on my knees before a loving and gracious Savior and recognizing that he has already picked me. Falling on your knees before a loving and gracious God who would come to the earth in flesh because he loves you and saying, will you rescue me from sin and from death? When you put your faith in Christ in that moment, you're made spiritually alive. When you put your faith in Christ in that moment, you're made spiritually alive. And here's the good news about that. Someday your body's still gonna kick it, right? If Jesus doesn't return first, you're still gonna get old, you're still gonna get sick. The anvil's still coming from somewhere. And when your body quits, if you've been made spiritually alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you go into eternity fixed in that position. Spiritually alive forever and ever and ever and ever in the presence of God for whom you were created. Fulfilling your purpose for eternity in relationship and community with God himself. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? The table of Jesus is a table of provision. And what he provides for us there is fulfillment to our greatest need as men and women. Our greatest need is not a sandwich or a ceremony. Our greatest need is life. And so the question you have to ask yourself this morning where you sit is this. Have you ever trusted in Christ to rescue you from sin and death? And that's a yes or no question. And if you're here this morning and the answer to the question is no, then the invitation to you today is will you be saved by Jesus? Will you kneel before him and say, rescue me, I need you? There's no magic prayer to pray. There's no program to sign up for. It's about a human being recognizing their brokenness and turning from sin and turning to Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never reached out to Jesus to be saved from your sin, I invite you to do that right where you sit. There's no prescription to it. You could cry out in the quietness of your own heart to the Lord Jesus and say, will you rescue me from sin and death? I believe in you. And the Bible says that those who believe will be saved. In that moment, resurrection life can be yours. You know, there's no way that I could learn all of your names, but if you're here this morning and you're one that walked into the room this morning spiritually dead, that maybe had never heard the truth of the gospel, this good news, the saving work of Christ, why we celebrate on Easter, and you've just put your faith in Christ, I'd love to be able to pray with you. I'd love to be able to pray alongside you. It doesn't mean I'm gonna come and find you, but even in the quietness of this moment, I could pray for your face right where you sit. So with everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed, if you're here this morning, you'd say, Darren, I've never put my faith in Christ, but I'm doing that now. I'm trusting in him to rescue me from sin and death. I believe. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up really quick so I could see it? I could just pray for your face from where I'm standing? Praise God. Thank you. You can put it back down. I just want to be able to see where you're at. If God's drawing you to himself this morning. Anybody else? Say, I haven't trusted in Christ, but I'm doing that right now. 
take a second just to make sure I'm looking. Awesome. They've never trusted in Christ. I'd like to have everybody look up here at me. There are some of you in the room who've, who've put your faith in Jesus. We believe the Bible is true when it says that when you trust in him, you are made spiritually alive. That means that that saving work has already been done and it's fixed in eternity. Can't be taken away. There may be others of you here this morning who aren't quite ready to believe in Christ and I want to let you off the hook. I think sometimes people leave a service like this and they're like, that's it, I'm going to hell now, right? Not true, right? You don't have to put your faith in Christ in a church building. You don't have to put your faith in Christ on a piece of Christian property or whatever. Who cares about that? Put your faith in Christ when you get home. Put your faith in Christ while you're in your car. But put your faith in Christ. The position of your feet doesn't matter. The position of your heart is what we're talking about. And if you have questions, if, there are, if there, are, there are questions you've got or things you're skeptical about, things you'd like to have answered, you want to have a conversation about what it means to be a Christ follower, we would love to walk that road with you a little bit. You know, I believe that there isn't a question or a skepticism you have that my God can't answer. That there isn't a, a, a brokenness or a pain or a shame of your past that my God can't heal. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ, I don't want you to feel like this is the only window of time in which you can put your faith in him. It's an open invitation to all mankind. Believe and be saved. And if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, I'll say this. This message, this message of resurrection is is not one we celebrate once a year. And as ambassadors, which we've all been called to, it's certainly not one we should only be declaring once a year. This message should come out of our guts every day. That Jesus came to provide for us a much greater need than we could ever have satisfied on our own. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself. I thank you and praise you for those who put their faith in you this afternoon. Right here in this room who've cried out to you. We praise you for the work you do in drawing us to your son. God, I pray for those in the room who still have questions or who have doubts or who are unsure. God, I pray that you would help them in their unbelief, that you would draw them to yourself, that you'd answer their questions, and that you would amaze them with your love. And God, I pray for those of us in the room who've been following you, who've been granted and blessed with resurrection life by your grace, God, that you would help us to carry the the message of reconciliation with joy and with boldness, with celebration, not just once a year. But every time, every time we open our eyes, every time we open our mouth, that you be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.